This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls. I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. Now we're starting the week with the news that Matt Hancock came third in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Fraser, do you think when Matt Hancock does return to the Commons, he's going to be welcomed, the boost perhaps in the nation will be reflected in the party? I do think the Commons is his natural constituency here. When he went into the jungle, Andy Coulson wrote an article for a coffee house, um, Andy Coulson being Cameron's former um, spin chief, where he said that um, the odds were that Matt Hancock will emerge better from this with his public profile improved. And I think that's what we've seen. Television can turn political neutrality into celebrity. The irony was that Matt Hancock was not a celebrity when he did I'm a celebrity, but now he has become one. So like Michael Portillo, like Anne Widdicombe, like um, other politicians who... Ed Bowles. Of course, I wouldn't place Ed Ed Bowles quite in the pantheon of political baddies. Um, But I I wasn't a great fan of his. But, you know, these guys, they will use television to think, okay, you think I'm a political baddie, but actually I'm an okay guy. And then you go off into some varied afterlife. Now, Bertillo's never off um, trains surveying this country or that country. And Whittacombe went on, I don't know how many um, reality TV or, or, or game shows. She ended up back in the European Parliament as a Brexit MEP. So I think Matt Hancock's career will be quite varied now. I don't think Rishi Sunak's going to welcome him back into the Cabinet. But it wouldn't surprise me if Matt Hancock still thinks that there is a fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square waiting for him. And it's interesting, James, that the to Fraser's point about whether Matt Hancock has bigger ambitions now than government or the House of Commons. Um, a spokesperson for Matt Hancock denied a story in The Sun last night um, saying Matt has no intention of standing down or stepping away from politics and has not been having conversations with any big-name PRs. Um, do you buy that? Uh, i tell you what I think, my, my little prediction for Matt Hancock's future. I think he can hear the sound of bow bells. I think he might be thinking that with his he's going to raise his profile over the coming years you know i think this i think he's this is this was his second reality tv venture the first hasn't aired yet but the celebrity who dares wins um sas well, apparently he came did pretty well on that so i think he will carry on he's inherently competitive and as we've seen he has a very high humiliation threshold so i think he'll carry on doing these things and become a kind of feature of them and then I think he will run for mayor of London. That be that is not based on you know I haven't spoken to Matt Hancock since he got out of the jungle. But just my prediction is that he will see that as his outside in route back in. And you can see that I think he will think that that is something where that that's the kind of political career that is now open to him. He will think. So mayor of London, do you think it'll also now be a host on shows like Have I Got News for You? If he's going for the Boris Johnson model, I, I think he will do lots of kind of reality TV. I think. I think to be uh, fair to Matt Hancock, he had a strategy when he went on I'm a Celebrity, which was... Not dyslexia. Well, I think he knew that he was going to become the centre of attention at the beginning of the 
thing. He would be sent to do all of these hideous tasks. And I think he, and like, because he has this very high humiliation threshold and is a kind of perennial optimist, he, you know, a lot of people would have got down by the fact the public kept voting for him to be subject to, to all of this stuff. Instead, I think Matt would have been like, right, I'm at the centre of a show. That is my opportunity to make progress and win friends and, uh, and, and stay in it. So I think, but I think this is very much like, he is going to be, an, he, he, ironically, for someone who, up to this point in his political career has been, you know, the consummate insider, the the special advisor uh, who was helped into a safe seat, who rose up very quickly through the ranks because of all of his, uh, all of his knowledge of the inner workings of Parliament and the Parliamentary Party. He is now going to try and be an outsider coming in as a kind of celebrity, but rather than as a machine politician. But say he does stand for office as mayor of London, that is where I think the real test will come. Now, his problem wasn't that he had an affair. Lots of people have affairs. His problem was he started a relationship at a time where he made it illegal for anybody else to do so. He was then a fierce advocate of lockdowns. He was he backed sending the police after women having a cup of coffee together in the park, let alone starting an adulterous affair with your advisor. I think obviously it's a very different bar to do okay on a reality TV show than to run for office again. I'm not I'm not suggesting that he's going to kind of be swept. Tin. But I think that if you ask me what he is thinking, the kind of things yeah. he will be Inside thinking about. Matt Hancock's mind. Yeah. That's the insight today. Well, because no, he, he, he's, he's like one of his little weebles that you can't knock them down, they keep bouncing back. And he is probably the most indefatigably optimistic politician that I've ever met. But, I, and by the way, I could be wrong here. It could well be that people have seen what those of us who know Matt Hancock have always known, that he is actually a really personable, decent person. I very much disagree with what he did over lockdown, by the way. And I, I think politically it should be unforgivable. I rather hope it is not forgiven. Um, but I, I could be wrong. Now, away from Matt Hancock, for now we expect that he is not going to be joining um, the list of MPs not planning to stand down by the next election. But Fraser, that list is growing. We had Deanna Davison, um, once a poster girl for the Red Wall 2019 general election of when she won the Bishop Auckland seat, saying she's not going to um, stand again. Is this becoming a big problem for Rishi Sunak? James Heal is doing an updated list on Coffee House, which, uh, and right now it is the same number at time of recording of Labour MPs as Tory MPs standing down. I do think it is a bit of a problem because it's a, a reminder to everybody that the Conservatives do not expect to do very well at the next election, to put it mildly. They are 23 points behind Labour in the opinion polls, according to our poll tracker. And that means if today's polls were tomorrow's election results, they would lose about half of those MPs. Now, the Scottish Labour wipeout sends a big message to politicians that if you put enough MPs on the market at the same time looking for the same sort of consultancy jobs, it's rather difficult. So if you think you're doomed, it's best to stagger your exits, to get out now, to declare yourself um, looking for another employment. And that will, that will far better able you do what Matt Hancock is doing to parlay political profile into some kind of currency in the outside world. So I think the more, and of course we've got a boundary review coming up, so some bees are saying, look, my seat's disappeared, uh, I've got kids, I'm not going to stand for a new one. You've also got December the 5th cut-off for MPs to decide if they are going to be in the next round or not. So between now and then we might get more MPs saying that they've had enough and they're off scheme. And James, when it comes to Rishi Sunak's problems, obviously the fact that Labour still have a large poll lead, even if it is, you know, narrowed 
slightly since Richie Sunak took over from Liz Truss. And then we also have some rebellions coming up the track on the levelling up bill. Now you have on one side, you have Theresa Villiers and blue wall MPs who are trying to clamp down in terms of making these housing building targets no longer mandatory. And then on the other side, you have Simon Clark, who wants onshore wind arms, and he has Liz Truss, he has Boris Johnson, he has the new Tory rebel chief, Jake Barry. How much of an issue is this for Richie Sunak? Because it does look at to a degree as though he doesn't have much of a grip on his party. I think parliamentary rebellions are always something that leaders would rather not have to deal with. I I think also these rebellions tell you something about the accumulated time the Tories are in power. The ban on onshore wind was imposed by David Cameron to deal with backbench unhappiness when he was leader about all of these onshore wind farms. And I, I think what Grant Shapps is saying this morning suggests some kind of movement from the government, essentially saying that if there was genuine local consent for onshore wind, the government would be happy to see that happen. And that is kind of where the Simon Clark Amendment is. So, although obviously, if you think back to fracking, defining what community consent is, is not simple. But that. then on the housing thing, I think there is, if you look at who signed this, there is a problem, which is there is a particular cadre of Tory MPs, generally in southern seats, who worry about these housing targets and what they mean and whether they're going to mean too much development in their constituency and I think the problem is that you've got you know more than half of Tory MPs have previously been ministers which makes them more difficult to whip and also in the in the political context that you that you were talking about with the polls and things people are more worried about their own seats so people think oh hang on a second I, I, I don't want to upset this bit of my constituency by saying that I'm for this or for that so I think the question on the Theresa Villiers amendment is you know can Michael Gove come up with something that satisfies the rebels but doesn't dismantle the entire planning system. We had a long discussion about this in our weekly editorial conference which has just finished. Um, some people were thinking should we make this the cover? Are the wheels coming off this tonight government? I think, I mean Katie, you're the one who said in conference that you don't think it is that far because fundamentally he got his budget through. People were threatening to rebel against the tax rises. Had that happened he would be in trouble surviving as a Prime Minister, but if I paraphrase you correctly, you think this is within the grounds of letting off steam as opposed to um, collapse? I think what's tricky is we've had a year where the Tory party has ousted not one but two Prime Ministers, and therefore it changes your perspective on what counts as a crisis. And also, I think, as someone covering a Tory party that's been in crisis for so long, you can see rebellion and, you know, there's been a point where oh, there's a rebellion and then sooner or later people start talking about letters going in and a leader under pressure. And with Rishi Sunak, I think that there are clearly lots of rebellions popping up. But as, as you say, I think the, the bigger takeaway for me is he's managed to get tax rises past his party with, yes, some grumbling, but little sign of a, a full rebellion. Now, of course, that would have been a confidence issue. So that would have been a very drastic measure not, not to support this. But given the Tory party has been quite into doing drastic things for the past 12 months, it was still a possibility that this uneasy truce, I think, you know, after the chaos of the way the Liz Trust Premiership ended, could have just, you know, gone and then I was speaking to one planning rebel who said oh actually I think Rishi Sunak's doing really well um it's quite nice that we can just rebel on legislation again <laughs> so, so so there are obviously some people who don't like um the current number 10 the government they didn't support Rishi Sunak in leadership but there are others who actually almost see this more as a return to a, a, a more normal state of affairs I think the issue issue for Rishi Sunak which is why 
I would not completely say, oh, this is nothing to worry about for the government, is that the perception is it starts to look as though he doesn't really have full control of his party and he is just the most sensible person to delicately lead them to to opposition and a less bad defeat. And I don't know what he does to, to basically stop that from happening. I did see Andrew Mitchell give an interview where he was quite critical about Rishi Sunak's decision not to go forward with the foreign aid at 0.7% of GDP. And to me, it read that he was on manoeuvres. What about you, James? Yeah, again, and this is one of the things about having been in government for 12 years. Andrew Mitchell and Jeremy Hunt obviously both rebelled against the attempt to reduce foreign aid from 0.7 to 0.5 when... More than that, Andrew Mitchell tried to lead a rebellion to basically outwit Boris Johnson on this. Yeah, along with Jeremy Hunt, they both... Yeah. And, and you know, and they weren't trying to just try out with Boris Johnson. I mean, Rishi Sunak was the chancellor at the time, and it, it was it was announced in, you know, I can't remember what, one of his. Well, I never remember what's a budget and what's a statement, but you know, one of his fiscal events it was in. But I think the point about Andrew Mitchell is, and this I think is the interesting question, which is, you know, clearly he is now inside the tent. I won't, I won't continue with the with the metaphor because we all know where it goes, and and I think that the question is, you know, I think the challenge is, can he? If he can be satisfied with 0.5 and the spending on domestic-based issues in this country, then I think that you won't see a Tory rebellion on 0.7 because you you essentially have brought the person in there. I think there is a big, a bigger question long term about you know again you see this all of the knock-on impacts that the small boats crisis has are all sort of points of different aspects in the system which is you know the, the the small boats crisis is having a material impact on the aid budget because people who come here in their first year that cost comes out of the aid budget and so you've got people in the aid community now saying well hang on a second because the numbers have increased so much we are getting less money for international aid projects overseas because we're spending so much of this budget at home and i think it is just another reminder that small boats is this issue that the government needs to come up with a solution to Thank you, James. Thank you, Fraser. And while we have you here, if you did enjoy today's podcast, please do rate and review. If you didn't enjoy it, you could also do that. But we've we've particularly putting an emphasis on the people who like it. (laughs) 